First Samuel chapter 17. Um, it's an amazing thing to look at the Bible and to see how many different um, ways and, and methods that God uses to uh, describe himself. You know, he'll call himself a shepherd, you know, and uh, in that we are able to um, meditate on, on a shepherd or think about a shepherd or understand a shepherd and, and then correlate it with God. And we're able to, to, to learn from that the way that God uh, leads us and the way that God deals with us, you know. And God does that over and over again throughout the scriptures, liking himself up to, unto a father. And he, of course, he is our father. But uh, giving us that earthly uh, example, something that we can compare, something we can relate to, and then through that we can then understand his ways and the way that he deals with us in our lives, you know, God is a warrior, you know, and, and so on it goes. He just takes these things that we understand and then applies them to himself. And one of the things that God uses to do that throughout the Bible at various places is, is that of a potter, uh, one who works with clay. And, um, and, and he does that. He, he does it, obviously, in Jeremiah 18, the classic passage where God sends Jeremiah to the potter's house and, and tells him to just watch. And he sees the potter take clay and make something, and then it breaks and he makes something new and God says look observe that and he says am not I the potter and you're the clay and am I not able to do with you as this potter has done with the clay Isaiah takes that same thing by the spirit of God chapter 64 and he, he he's praying and he just says you're our father you you're the potter and we're the clay you know we're we're nothing we're just in your hands whatever you want to do with us you know the Apostle Paul picks up on it in Romans chapter 9. And uh, he says, Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel uh, unto honor and another unto something else? You know, and, 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 and so throughout the Bible, God lays this illustration before us of how a potter works with clay. Uh, and, and then he says, now understand that this is the way that I work in a life or in a nation or in a church or in a marriage, that, that I am the potter. I am able to fashion it any way that I want. And so as we consider that and we think about God as the potter, you know, we understand that the first thing that a potter will do is, is he'll conceive of something in his mind that he wants to create. He sees the final outcome of something before he ever even begins uh, the process of, of making it. And so he knows. He, he has the dimensions. He has the process. He knows how long it's going to take. He knows what he needs. Uh, he, all of those things are already in the mind of the architect, uh, the creator, before it's even done. But then, then what he does is he goes to a place and he selects the clay that he wants to use. And, and of course, you know, in the modern era, we would go to whoever sells it. But for God, he doesn't go to a store, but he goes to the ground itself, to the very source of the clay. And he cuts out and he looks and he says, this is it. This is the material that I want to work with. This is what I need in order to accomplish what I want to do. And so he takes this clay and he pulls it, he harvests it right out of the ground. And the first thing that he'll do is he'll make sure that it's soft. And so he'll work water into the clay. He'll mold it between his hands. And then he'll begin this incredibly cruel process of beating the clay. Literally just picking it up and slamming it onto a surface. Just with the most... Uh, um, thunderous force as possible, just slamming it down, beating his fists into this clay, folding it over and just working it and beating it and, and seeking to bring about a consistency in the material before he even begins shaping it. 
Also at the same time, he's removing every little pore, every little space where there's air. So anything that would compromise the integrity or the strength of the final product after it's been put through the kiln. And so he'll beat this clay in just this ongoing process of, of folding and beating and rolling and stretching and then doing it again and seeking to make it completely malleable in his hands so as that nothing can, can hinder him then from doing what he wants to do when it is that he's going to make it. And then he begins the process of forming and pressing and turning and, and, and wheeling and removing, you know, and adding and subtracting and, and this whole thing that we've seen, you know, we've been familiar with it to some regard or another, but God making the vessel. And so as we look at the life of David and we consider what God is making, we see that he's the potter, David the clay. And where we are, as we pick up in chapter 17, as we see that God has, what, where we are in his, his, his development is that God has just very simply selected the clay that he wants to use. He's found the place. He hasn't begun anything yet. The beating process, the spinning, none of it has happened. God has simply seen the substance that he wants to take up in his hands and now he's going to take a man and he's going to make him into something else. And that's the thing that God does in every single life that he grabs a hold of. Every single one of us here shares that in common with David, is that God saw the ground that we were a part of before he ever called us, before we ever heard the name Jesus, before we ever had the opportunity to respond to the gospel. God saw us, and he, he knew what he wanted to make in every life before, beforehand. And he then puts his hand into the ground, and he scoops up the life, you and I, that he wants to take. And, and that's the very first thing. And that's what, that's what God has done. And so as we look at what God now does to shape David, we understand that everything that happens to us in our lives is the work of God preparing us for what it is that he wants us to be and wants us to do. Because he's the potter and we're the clay. And so God has selected David the process of God in changing him has begun. And where we pick up in chapter 17 now is the providence of God in bringing him to the wheel, bringing him to the place where he will then uh, begin to be shapen. Now, the amazing thing about this is that David has no clue of any of, of any of this. He has no idea that any of this is going on at all. And unfortunately, that's true for us most of the time, too. We experience the, these things, and we have no idea what God is doing or, or his process or his ways. But here it is, and it, and it continues now uh, with David. It tells us in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, as far as leading up to um, what brings us to this point, David has been anointed by Samuel. He's been told that God has a plan for his life. He has been chosen by Saul and by Saul's servants to come into the palace and to be for Saul a musician. He's cunning and playing. He's wise. And so he became Saul's armor bearer. He was very close to Saul. And he became Saul's personal musician because Saul was being tormented by a demon. And so when David would play, Saul would feel better. And that was the ministry of David at this point in his life. And that's where we pick up now in verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines, and the Philistines were the perpetual enemy of Israel throughout this period of their history. All the way from the time 
the, the, of the, the end of the portion of Judges and the ministry of Samuel, uh, all the way through and, and really um, until about the end of the reign of David and into the reign of, of Solomon, the Philistines are the, the chief aggressor in the lives of the Israelites. And it says that the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle. And they were gathered together at Shuko, which belongs to Judah. So the tribe of Judah, which is somewhat near the region of Bethlehem, Bethlehem being in Judah, the place where David lived. And, he, and they pitched between Shuko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul, who was the king, and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And so the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. So a very classic picture of two uh, military battalions that are now squaring off for battle. There's, a, there's an obvious arena where the battle will take place, and behind those lines on the one side are the Philistines, and on uh, the other side... Of course, is Saul and the people of God. And so that's the battle lines. They're drawn up. And so now the plot thickens as uh, the tension grows between these two sides. We see that um, it says in verse 4 that there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath. Gath was one of the five cities of the Philistines whose height was six cubits in a span, which is about nine feet, nine inches, uh, according to uh, our understanding of a cubit. It could be a little bit taller, but you can imagine that this is a very large individual uh, just in terms of height. You know, if you've ever, um, you know, seen a life-size replica of like Shaquille O'Neal or Andre the Giant, you know, seven foot four, seven foot five. So just picture two feet higher. Than that, about the size of the ceiling height in this room uh, of a man, just massive. And not only was he tall, because you can be tall and lanky, you know, the NBA, but it says that he, verse 5, had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. That's, that's heavy. And it says that he had greaves of brass upon his legs, so like these, you know, six-inch or, you know, anklets uh, of armor around his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders, which will turn out to be a great advantage for David later. You always want something to aim at. Um, <laughs> you know, but basically a shield, a breastplate is what it's speaking of. And it says that the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. So this massive giant of a man uh, exists of the Philistines. And, and here's what this man did. It tells us now in verse 8. It says, And he stood, and he cried unto the armies of Israel, and he said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and you the servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. And if he be able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight 
together. And so basically what he says is there's really no use for our armies to engage one another. Why do you come out here and, and set the battle in array? We could solve this in a very simple manner. I'm one man. And I will come out into the valley, and I just represent, I'm just a mere sliver, a mere representation of what the Philistines stand for. Just one man, and we'll make it even. You take one man from among you. I'm their champion, so you take your champion, the man who's the greatest from among you, and send him out here into this valley, and we'll just turn this battalion on battalion into mano y mano, man on man, one on one. Let's simplify this. And we'll have a fight between our best and your best. And the winner take all. Winner To the winner go the spoils. We will serve you if you win, and you will serve us if you win. And so uh, this man does it, and we will read in a few verses that for 40 days this went on, that day by day Goliath came out with these words, and yet none of the men of Israel uh, able to fight him. And so what we, what we see here in um, in all of this is we see a giant of a problem facing the people of God, that there is an issue here that they are faced with that seems to them to be an insurmountable, undefeatable foe. And so as we look at those verses and just consider what was told to us concerning this man, Goliath, there are um, five things that um, more or less define his strength. What was the strength of Goliath and the hold, the strength of the hold that he had against the people of God uh, in his coming to them? The first thing is very simply his appearance. It is the intimidation of his size and of his strength and of his armor and everything that made him the warrior that he was. He was extremely intimidating to them uh, in the thing, and, and, and he looked something that was way beyond their ability. The second thing concerning his strength is it tells us that he was their champion. And the word champion just very simply means that he's a proven warrior, meaning that many people have tried to fight this giant in the past and have not prevailed. That every time this man has gone into battle against any other man, the other man fell and was killed, and this man remained strong and survived. And that was certainly the fact that he was their champion, a point of intimidation to the people of God. Well, if no one else has been able to defeat this man, then what chance do we have to defeat this man? The third um, measure of this man's strength was in his identity. When he came to Israel, the first words that he uttered to them is that he said, Am not I a Philistine? And, and those words, though they just be a, a matter of fact, he was a Philistine, to the Israelites, they were a measure of their own or an indication of their own failure. At this point, Saul has been the captain of Israel for some 30 years. And for 30 years of Saul, the man who is head and shoulders above every other man in the nation of Israel, the Philistines have not been defeated by the Israelites in all of that time. And so for Goliath to come forward and say, am not I a Philistine, in their minds, the, the Philistines are a symbol of perpetual defeat. We've beaten the Midianites, we've beaten the Amalekites, we've beaten all of the other kites, but the Philistines thus far have proven to be too strong an enemy, too powerful an, adverse, an adversary for us 
to uh, to conquer. So that was the third point of his strength, was his identity. The fourth point of his strength was the words that he spoke to Israel in pointing out that Saul was their king. And he said, are not you servants of Saul? And this was very calculated and very strategic on the part of Goliath. Anything that he can do to get their minds off of who it is that they're really serving. Because if you really look at the fact of the matter, this is a lie. These men are not servants of Saul. These men are servants of God. Israel is not Saul's country. Israel is God's country. Israel doesn't mean governed by Saul. Israel means governed by God. And in keeping these people aware of their earthly allegiances and blinded to their heavenly identity, he is keeping them in a state of weakness. You are servants of Saul. And so he would say this, and automatically their attention would be drawn to Saul. And so they would look at Saul, and seeing Saul, they would see that he was way beyond them in physical stature, but yet the man was insane. The man needed a special musician and a psychiatrist and a therapist just to keep his mind at ease. And though he seemed to have it together physically, the man had no courage at all to go out against this man, Goliath. And if the leader won't go and fight him, then what chance do we have of going out and fighting him? And so Goliath, by keeping their eyes on Saul, kept them crippled in fear, thinking that they were no match for him and his strength. And then finally, uh, their own physical limitations. Their own physical limitations, uh, as it tells us in verse 9, where he just says, if, if, if he, any man from you, be able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And just from a practical, scientific lay the odds out on the table as they are, we have no chance in our own mind of beating this man. And thus the result of, of, this, um, of this man and his taunting, this giant that the Israelites were afraid to go out and fight against, the result of these things were two. Number one is that God was insulted. It tells us there in verse 10 that the Philistines said, I defy the armies of the living God, or the armies of Israel this day, give me a man that we may fight together. The word defy means to defame, to reproach, to strip off, or to expose. And what Goliath is essentially saying is that your God is nothing. I defy your, your armies, the armies of Israel. Your God is powerless. Your God is impotent. Your God is unable. And I have exposed the weakness of your God in that none of you are, are willing to come out and fight against me as the giant that I am. And this is an insult to the person and to the reputation of God. God said in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 13, through, the, through Moses, his servant, he said that you shall be the head and not the tail. And God said that none of your enemies shall stand before you. That was the will of God and that was the promise of God and the word of God concerning his people Israel. And in their fearfulness to go out and fight this man Goliath, they were bringing reproach upon the God who said that he would be with them. And so we see this giant of a man insulting them. And then the second um, result of this, uh, um, this impotence on the part of Israel uh, to go out and fight them, it tells us in verse 11. 
It says that when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, that they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So not only is God insulted, but we see that these people are set in crippled fear. They're dismayed and they're greatly afraid. Not one of them, from the king to the least in the army, is willing to go up and face this giant that needs to be taken down. Now, the reality, as it goes in the life of any Christian, any person of God, is that there are giants uh, that, that we face personally that need to be brought down. And sometimes the giants that we find ourselves up against and things in our lives that, uh, that come to us and, and that, um, that, that, that boast of, of, of our weakness to us and boast of their own victory over us, those giants are real and those giants are absolutely strong. And sometimes we can be in a place where there, are, there is something in our life where everything, uh, as far as we can understand it, tells us that there's no possible way that that giant can be conquered, that, that all we can do is hide in fear and hope that somehow that giant just dies on his own at some point and goes away or stops taunting us or gets called to another battle and that, that that's the only way that we'll ever um, get past this valley that we're in is if some miracle happens by some stretch because there's no way if I try to fight this thing that I'm going to win it. Some of the, the giants that we face as people of God in this day. They, they all fall uh, under one of three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And every giant that we face, though they, they may differ from person to person, falls under the banner of one of those three categories. Uh, and so you'll see someone falling uh, to the giant of alcohol or to some substance uh, dependence or substance addiction that they have. Uh, and, and however they got into that situation where you know they're, they're, they're faced against the, the, that giant or put against that valley, it can happen a thousand different ways, but that substance dependence can be so big in that person's life and it can, can be so uh, daunting and bring such crippling fear that that person just resigns themselves to, well, this is just a part of my life. There's nothing that I can do about it. I can't defeat this, this thing. Uh, to someone else, the giant will be manifested uh, through maybe a sex addiction or a porn addiction, or in some uh, uh, lust of the, of the flesh, literally, uh, that, that they can't get past. It's, this thing is just too strong. It's too ingrained. It's too much a part of my life. It, it's too uh, pervasive. It's, it's too re resilient. It bounces back too quickly and too easily. And even the smallest victories uh, um, just seem to, to, to fade into the background so quickly, and it just comes back. And, and that thing is just never going to go. If it dies on its own, is the only chance that I'll ever have of defeating this. For someone else, it's pride, the pride of life and, and the covetousness that comes with pride, uh, obtaining things, uh, having more, a pursuit of wealth, a pursuit of, of things, you know, and being governed by materialism and just being brought into kind of a vortex or a whirlpool where the strength of, uh, of, of having the world, of owning the world is so strong within their life. It's just a giant within them and they, they can't seem to ever seem, see themselves being brought out of it. For someone else, that giant might manifest in a desire for control. They're a control freak. 
or they have a lust for power. And so uh, they, they can't stand in their lives to just surrender and let things fly. But, but they have to control. And so they're manipulators and they manipulate people and they manipulate uh, their, their spouse or their wife or their children or, or the people that work around them or for them or their friends. And they just always have to have the upper hand. And there's something that's got a hold of them where for them to not be in perfect control of everything in their life is just beyond what they can, could even imagine. To surrender or to yield or to rest is beyond them and it's a giant in their life. For someone else, it's a tendency towards obsession or to be obsessive about something. And it could be any something. It just grabs a hold and you can't let go of it. A thought comes into your mind and no matter what you try to do, you can't get that thought out. Once it's rooted there, it's there. And, and, the, and the strength of those roots is so far beyond your ability uh, to, to undo it. You know, and it's just a giant. It's a giant in my life and I can't remove it. For someone else, it's a self-righteousness. They can't let go of their own sense of, of being right. I'm right in this situation. And so you'll see that manifested in a marriage where there's a rift in the marriage and, and it's not worth it to humble the pride and to, and to just uh, absorb the wrong and, and, and just deal with the fact that you're going to lose in the thing in some way, even if it's an invisible some way, but just for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of longevity, I can't let go of my righteousness. Job did that. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I pray, yet I will cling to my own ways. You know, and how many of us can be like that? It's a giant within our lives where our pride won't let us uh, lay down our own righteousness. I'm right in this. And, and in another way, it can just be a besetting sin. The giant of a besetting sin. Something that kind of, we, we weren't expecting it, we never saw it coming, and yet it comes on the horizon and it gets a foothold in our life and it grabs a hold of us in a way where we cannot set it down. And, and so that what happens then is that besetting sin, it blinds us. We can't, we can't see clearly in our lives and we've been taken captive. The Apostle Paul said, you know, that we should deal wisely with and, and graciously with those who have been taken captive by Satan to do his will and try to, to try if we can to, to remove them from the snare of the devil. And sometimes that snare of the devil that can come, you know, you, you, you go on Facebook or some social media platform and you rekindle a relationship that you've got no business um, rekindling. And, and all of a sudden, a besetting sin, an attachment that's long been broken, has somehow deep in the mind been reconnected. And it's, you never saw it coming, never thought it could become something, but then it grows into something that, that, that's going to destroy your entire life. It's just a besetting sin in some way. It becomes a giant, and it's bigger than I am. I don't have the ability to take these things down within my life. And any time there's a giant, and there's always giants, and no matter what that giant is, that the taunting of that giant is going to be the same as Goliath's. He's going to say, I'm not I a Philistine. Look at what I have done in the lives of those that, that, that I have, have touched. No one has been able to defeat me, and you haven't been able to defeat me. Even in the 30 years that you've been trying, I'm way too powerful for you. And then that sin tries to keep our eyes on the physical limitations that we have. You've tried, and you can't. So go on, present your cause. Try. You've tried, and you absolutely cannot do it, no matter what it is that you want to do. And we look at those things, and the result of it is that, first of all, our God is reproached. Because what he says to us concerning our strength in those things is different from what that sin is saying to us 
concerning those things. And we're choosing to believe what the sin is saying to us rather than what God says to us. And thus God is insulted when a giant has dominion over one of his own people. And then the other thing that it does within our lives is that it keeps us dismayed and afraid. We hide behind the shadows of that valley and the progress of our Christian development stops. And we're just sitting in a place where until we face that battle and that giant comes down within our lives, we're going to stay right exactly where we are and for, forever, however long that takes. And that's where we see Israel in this position now before this giant. And it's where we also can see ourselves from time to time uh, within our lives. And so uh, then it goes on and we finally meet David, the man, the hero of the story, uh, the one who's going to go in and face this battle and fight. And this is where we begin to learn now what made David different. What made David different than all the other men of Israel uh, that, were, that were unable to, to obtain victory over the giant? Um, it says in verse 12, now David, it says that he was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he, that is Jesse, had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And so David, the son of Jesse, and it says that the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the next unto him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. And so there's two things basically that are, are told to us concerning David uh, as we first meet him here that are, I think, of extreme um, significance in, in terms of the background of, of why David was victorious over this giant. Number one, it points out to us his heritage. It tells us that he was the son of that Ephrathite. And this is the only time that Jesse is referred to as the Ephrathite. And what this is designed to do is not to point out his nationality or his dialect in terms of the segment of Israel that he was from, but rather what it does is it points back further past Jesse all the way to Boaz. Remember Boaz from the book of Ruth? He was that Ephrathite. He was the one uh, that, that started this whole thing. And essentially what the Spirit of God is pointing out and pointing to David's heritage in this way is that David's identity was not in the fact that he was a servant to Saul, but he saw that he had a lineage and a destiny that was bigger than what the physical world would see it as being. I belong to a family that's of greater stature and of greater importance and greater significance in the things of God than any earthly family ever could be. And that's always going to be the foundation of any victory that we're going to possess within our lives. It's going to be when we realize that we are a part of something and that we're a part of a family that's bigger than anything that this world could ever produce or could be. Well, I'm not a dignitary. Well, I'm not a king. I'm not a wealthy man. I'm not an educated man. None of that matters. You're a Christian. You've been adopted into the family of God. You're the adopted brother of Jesus Christ. You've been sanctified by his blood and filled with his Holy Spirit. And that makes you and I different from everyone else that exists in the course of the world. Any Goliath, any giant, any Philistine, any Satanite that exists in the world, we are greater than they are by pure essence of the fact that we've been bought by the blood and we're in the family of God. 
And David viewed himself that way. He was the son of the Ephrathite. The other thing, which is also paramount concerning David's uh, um, identity, is that he was the youngest and most insignificant of the eight that existed in the household of Jesse. Eliab, Shammah, uh, you know, the, the three oldest, Abinadab, that were the prominent soldiers, the ones that seemed to be the most, they were the ones that had the most potential. David, nothing. The least, the shepherd, the one that we'll find out in a minute, keeps a few sheep in the wilderness. That's all he is. And that's important. Why? Because David knew that he was nothing. That though he was everything, he knew that in himself he was nothing. He was the least likely, the least significant, and so important that it is. Once we uh, you know, let go of our self-sufficiency, that's where God can begin within our lives. And so David, the youngest, the three eldest followed Saul. And then it tells us in verse 15, it says, But David went, and that he returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And this, uh, this to me is, is, is uh, remarkable. You know, to think about what David has been through in the past year uh, or two of his life at this point. I mean, out of nowhere, he had Samuel come and dump the oil. And then he goes back into the field, and he's just a shepherd. And then he has the servants of Saul come and say, we got a job for you in the palace. And so he goes into the palace, and he's there for a season, bearing the armor of Saul. And then things change. Change comes. And, you know, war begins. And, uh, you know, now David is sent home. Hey, all right, Dave, you're dismissed from your duty. This is bigger than you are. You, you will take your three older brothers, but you need to go home. Like, this is no place for a kid. And then he goes back, and he's in the field again. And you, and you wonder what David is thinking. Like, God, what in the world are you doing within my life? And here's what, here's what I would say uh, to us this morning concerning what we see happening in David. Is that don't be afraid and don't resist the changes that come within our life that are outside of our control. And when it seems like things are just unstable and there's a roller coaster of activity and am I in or am I out or am I up or am I down? Where am I here? Where am I there? Don't worry about that. Because what we're going to see is that God is providentially orchestrating things right now to set David in the place where he needs to be. And there's no possible way that David can forecast to understand what God is doing or how this is going to play out. But God knows how he's going to do things and how it's going to play out. And that's how it is within our lives. You've heard me use the illustration of a kaleidoscope before, right? You turn the kaleidoscope as you look in the light. What do you see? You see that that color pattern and, and, and shape is constantly changing. And as it changes, it never returns again to what it once was. It will always be different, never identical at the same time. And that's the way life is. Our lives, they're constantly, things are changing. And, and they're, they're constantly rotating. And colors are changing. And positions are changing and all of that. Understand, God is in control of it. And so David returns to keep the, the sheep at Bethlehem. And then it says in verse 16, it says, And the Philistine, Goliath now, drew near morning and evening, and he presented himself for 40 days. I want you to notice when Goliath chose to present himself to the children of Israel. When was it? It was morning and evening. And significant because in the Bible, the morning and the evening are the time of day for devotion. It would be the time when the priests would offer the sacrifice in the temple. There was the morning sacrifice and the evening. 
It's the time when the people of God come away to meet with God, when the manna would be laid on the ground, would be before the dew would dissolve early in the morning. God would bring meat and to fly into the camp in the evening. It's always the time of feeding, the time when, when man meets with God. And that was the time that the giant presented himself the strongest. Anything that the giants in our lives can do to keep our eyes and our mind off of the things of God. And so he knows when to come. And you guys know it, don't you? I know I do. I know when there's a giant in my life, it, is, it does everything in its power to keep my mind off of the things of God and to pull it away. And so it will show up the strongest in the times when I'm to meet with God. And so then it says in verse 17 that Jesse said unto David, his son, Take now for your brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand and look how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. Receive you know, a message back. I want to know how, how they're doing there in the battle. Are they safe? Are they well? And make sure you take care of uh, those that are looking after them. And it says, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Now just pause right there and just, just consider with me um, these four verses. Verse 16, 17, 18, and 19. 16 uh, talks about the Philistine drawing near. And then 17 and 18 talk about David being commissioned by his father. And then 19 jumps back into the battle with Goliath and the Philistines. And, and I ask the question as I just read this for myself and study it. Why, why the scattered bouncing between the scenes like this, sandwiching the two verses about David's being sent right in the middle of this issue of, you know, Goliath and, and the battle of the Philistines. Here's the reason. Timing. It's timing. Here's what God wants you to see, is that while this battle and this issue with the giant and the Philistine and Israel was going on, David's father was saying, you know what, I want, I want to know how my sons are doing. And here's what you need to see, that God was working behind the scenes. God was working behind the scenes in the thing that they could never expect in order to bring to pass his plan for David's life. And so David sent right at the time that this issue with Goliath is happening. And we'll see that that's important for the story. So it says in verse 20, And so David rose up early in the morning, and he left the sheep with a keeper, and he took and he went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight, and he shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage, and ran into the army and came and saluted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, right at that time, just coincidentally, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So the same thing that he would say every day, he spoke in the presence of David, and it says, now David heard them. 
And so David hears the same taunt and the same threats that everyone else has heard. And an amazing thing happens here in the, the life of this young man is that the giant that everyone else had previously been facing now becomes his giant as well. Something that he had never struggled with before. Something that had never been a problem for him in the past. Other men have, have stood and fallen before this giant. But now for the first time, David is confronted with the same test. And he's put before him with the same fear that everyone else has. But what's amazing is that David hears something completely different than what everyone else heard when the same words were spoken. And so it says that all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that they fled from him and that they were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy or insult Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And so David, just looking, and I, I can imagine as I see this scene within my mind, I see David standing there just looking at the giant. And, and as he thunders forth these words and he sees the men of Israel just retreating back up, back up the hill out of the valley and hiding behind him, David just standing there just looking at this man. And he's, what, what is this? And as the men begin to say that his father's house will be free, David just tunnel vision. Everything goes silent. He just Here's Charlie Brown's teacher next to him. Womp, 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 womp. And he just sees this man. He hears him saying, I defy the armies of Israel. Of Israel is ringing in the heart of this young man. He's, he's not wearing a, a bit of armor. He doesn't have a weapon in his hand. He's carrying cheese, you know. <laughs> And, and he's looking at this man. He's hearing the things that he's saying. And everything else just falls off for David. There's no Philistines. There's no army. There's no battle and array. There's no valley. There's no Saul. There's nothing. There's, there's a man out there who's mocking my God. There's a man out there that's bringing reproach upon the heritage and the people of my God. And maybe even the whole history of everything that God had done to bring the nation where they're flashing into the mind of David as he sees Abraham standing historically somehow in that valley with his sheep and the call of God upon his life. As he sees in his mind the battle of Israel when Joshua led them forth and, and destroyed the giants that were before them so that they could have the land that they're in. As he would see Samuel leading the ark and, and, and all of these things going on, he sees this giant that's standing there and then the fearfulness of all of Israel. And something is happening in the heart of this young man that is so different from what happened in everyone else when they saw it. And so David, verse 26, spoke to the men that stood by him, saying, what, what, what shall be done to the man that kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's what David saw. He saw the armies of the living God. And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that kills him. And then Eliab, now watch this, opposition from an unexpected source. What we just saw, by the way, is we saw God leading through the unexpected task or the interrupted moment. You ever been interrupted in a day and you get frustrated? Someone asks you to do something that you weren't planning on doing 
and you don't really want to do it, but you kind of have to because they have more authority than you, and you get all messed up. That's what happened to David. You know, hey, Dave, would you, you know, put everything else on hold and go see how your brothers are doing? Listen, embrace the interruptions. Sometimes the interruptions can be the very leading of God into greatness for your life. That's what's happening for David right now. He had no idea that day that he was going to go home a hero. No idea. And if he had been groveling and complaining about the fact that he wasn't where he wanted to be at that particular moment, it never would have happened. Interruptions can be divine. Embrace the interruptions. Now he gets opposition from an unexpected source. Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the naughtiness of your heart, for you're come down that you might see the battle. And you know what's happening here? It's pure jealousy. Is that Eliab sees a hero's heart and the hero's boldness arising in David. And out of a fear of being upstaged, he seeks to immediately bring David into the same fear that he himself is in. And so what does he do? First of all, he, he, he harps on David's presence. Why, why are you even here? And then he holds David's insignificance before him. With whom have you kept those few sheep in the wilderness? Who do you think you are? You keep a, you're the shepherd over a, a few sheep. And then somehow now all of a sudden you're the hero. And you're, you're, you, do you know who this man is? And do you know who we are? And you think you're just going to come out here now and you're going to just defeat a giant that no one else has even had the courage to go up and fight against? With whom have you kept those few sheep? Who do you think you are, young little shepherd boy? Then he holds before him his failure. He says, I know your pride and the naughtiness of your heart. I can tell you everything wrong you've ever done within your life, David. And you think that you have the moral high ground on something in this matter? He goes, I know your pride. You're nothing but a proud young man and you're seeking a hero's glory. Questioning the motives or the reason why David is standing up in the boldness that he is standing up in. And then he says, you're just come down that you might see the battle. You just want some excitement in this thing. I know your motives. Notice what David does. David says, verse 29, he says, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him. Do you see that? There's always going to be opposition in our lives anytime that we seek to stand up and stand for what God wants us to be and what God wants us to do. Anytime we make a stand against a giant that is threatening us out of boldness and love for God, there's going to be opposition. And it's going to come from the unexpected source. Remember Job? His wife said to him, curse God and die. And he said, woman, <laughs> it comes from the unexpected source. It happens. It's amazing. It says that he turned from him toward another. Put that voice out of your life. Put it out of your life. Now, if it's your wife, it's a little more challenging than that. You don't have the right to do it. But in the Lord, you can turn your attention upon him. And it says that he spoke after the same manner, and the people answered him again after the former manner. So David um, now 
we're, we're basically out of time. I could plow through the rest of this, or we could say, okay, well, we didn't beat the giant of these uh, 58 verses today. But So David now in a position where uh, things are, 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 are beginning to shape towards the battle uh, in it. And we'll pause there. We won't rush. We won't rush. <laughs> we won't rush. <laughs> it's an incredible picture developing in front of us and it's enough for us to meditate on to just think about because every one of us walked in here this morning uh, with something in the valley of Elah before us standing there and taunting and saying that there's no way there's no way but I want you to understand this and if you hear nothing else hear this is that these giants that face us in our lives are ordained of God to face us and that we might face them and that we might have victory over them. And until we do, and we will if we fight, until we do, we will go no further than where we stand or where we hide on our side of the valley waiting for that foe to be defeated. So how long is it going to be? Is it going to be 40 days? Is it going to be 40 months? Is it going to be 40 years like it was for the children of Israel who for 40 years wandered in the wilderness and they died there, never entering in to the promised land that God had for them? We are called to be the head and not the tail. And as long as our eyes are on the earthly or the physical or the practical or the historical will stand crippled in fear. And until our eyes are upon our heritage, upon our God, to whom belongs the battle, upon his word, in which is the promise, that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, then we sit crippled. We can put on as much armor as we want. We can, like Eliab, we can boast great things and and know people's pride and stand in our self-righteousness. But until we'll fight, until we'll see it for what it is, We stand right where we are. We don't move. We'll see what happens next week. We'll conclude uh, the narrative of David's uh, incredible victory as God taking this clay and getting ready to beat the daylights out of it to make it something useful for his name.